1: In 2017, a descendant of one of Fanganui's leading Fano was elected as a national MP. Just three years later, Harete Hipango lost her seat, but not her desire to serve her community. In 1868, the first Māori MPs entered New Zealand's House of Representatives. Today, there have never been more Māori in Parliament. They span the political and cultural spectrum, and continue to leave an indelible mark on our political landscape. In this series, we'll explore the legacies of former Māori MPs as they speak about their time in politics. I'm Mikey Sherman, political reporter. This is Mātangi Nireya.
0: the daughter, the mokopuna, the mother, the sister, the cousin, the auntie of my fananga in Wanganui. I'm the former Member of Parliament for Wanganui, the first Māori woman elected into a general seat in Whanganui, and I simply carry on the duty of care of my tūpuna. Ko te pāngo taku he uri no Whanganui.
1: Hā re te ngā mihinui ki a koe, tēnā koe mā ōkotae mai nei ki tēnei o ōnā whare, ki te kōrero ki a mātā o mātangi reia, ngā mihinui ki koe.
0: Me koe hoki aki.
1: I wondered if we might start with your name, Hā re Tell me about the fakapapa of that ingoa.
0: Hā re the name both my mother and father chose. My mother is Eileen Mary Shaw, and she's... Third generation Irish um, New Zealander. My father, Hwaini Wirimu Hipangu, is Wanganui Māori and Scots ancestry. So, mum and dad named me Hariti after Tupuna on my father's side, Makire after my mother's sister, whom she was very close to and was like a mother to her younger sister, and Hipangu Tupuna name, no Wanganui. And paint me a picture of your childhood. What was that like? Ah. Immersed in whanaungatanga maiki, so I grew up at Pūtiki, at the mouth of the Whanganu River. Mum met my father when they were both um, New Zealand Air Force down here at Punike at Shelley Bay, and she was one of the first Pākehā, actually, in the Ngāti Poneke, um Māori group they were called in those days, Kapahaka. My father's Anglican, mum's Catholic, so in order for my father to marry my mother in those days, he had to go through this transition of... Catholicism and learning about the Catholic Church and faith, but was never baptised Catholic, retained the Anglican Hakapapa heritage, because that's part of Putiki, the village I grew up in. It wasn't until a little bit later I became more aware of what colonisation was. Wanganui was not only colonised, we were, I'd say, religionised too, because of course with Colonialism, we had the religious element that came with that. It's not until we get older that we start absorbing and processing and taking these things in. My childhood memories were ones of putiki was the centre of the universe. Yeah, happy, happy days. But also my mother, um, because being here, and this is in the 1950s, marrying a Māori and into a Māori family, uh, I think my mother, had hard days too because she was a South Island woman and so mum became very dislocated from her family because she married a Māori. And so we didn't know much about my mother's ancestry. We were, we were immersed and we lived amongst my father's people. And so, of course, we took on that identity of being Māori. But I always acknowledge the dual heritage of both my mother and my father.
1: Was there much te reo Māori around you as a child? No,
0: Carl. Carl, And my father, again, was a product of that era. And my father went to the Incan school, St. George's school, as a little boy. And when he spoke Māori, he had it punished out of him. So we grew up as a result of that, as a consequence of that. And Dad strove in his later years in life to speak the ill, But we didn't grow up immersed in that. And that doesn't deny in any way whatsoever our identity as being Māori. Um, we were immersed in that. The deal was around us when we were down at the marae, but we never spoke it, or was never spoken around in the home setting. But certainly memories as a child, sitting at the feet of the nannies, particularly in the corridor, you you'd hear it.
1: And how many brothers and sisters did you have who was in the whānau at the
0: time? I come from a family of five children, Firstborn Ngawai was her name. She died three months old, cot death. And again, you know, during that time, smoking was in vogue. It was fashionable. So both of my parents and the aunties and uncles were smokers. So sudden infant death syndrome, it's called these days. But Ngawi died three months old. Then I have two older brothers, Hwaini, Wata. Then there was me, and then a younger sister, Papiana. So five of us.
1: And tell me about the river, which is a significant part for anyone
0: growing up in Whanganui. Growing up, look, the river was always there. You know, we lived right, we were on a hill. So we lived on a hill right beside the river. Um, and on the other hill was the fam- is our family Urupa. And then on the next hill over was well known for where the Anglican ministers used to conduct their, their mission back in the late 1800s. I mean, the marae was right next door to the river. We would never go to the river. And on reflection, we didn't go there because it was polluted. It was a place that was not well. It was unhealthy. And my memories as a child, just cycling to school alongside the Abak, was seeing the pipes of this muddied, murky water running out into the river. And it was raw sewage that would just, this is in the 70s, that would get pumped into it. And my memories of wondering, why is there not bird life? Surely there's got to be eca in the river. But there wasn't because it was so heavily polluted. And then moving on from that, as a younger woman during our Whanganu River claim hearings. So in the late 70s, early 80s. And I was at law school then but would come home and go down to the hearings and move around the marais and listen to the stories of the old people, their evidence, talking about what the life force and the the force of the river used to be with the life as it was in those days. And so the childhood memories of the Whanganui River were sad ones in that it was unwell, but always it was an essence and a life force that struggled to survive and it has.
1: What about politics? Was there much talk about politics around the dinner table as a, as a child growing up?
0: No, not with my parents. Um, Mum considered it was very impolite to speak about politics and to ever find out how much somebody was earning or anything like that, because I was exposed to it when I was amongst the waira whānau and with the aunties and the uncles down at the marae. But it wasn't just on the paipae and the mahoe of uh, the marae. It was in the kitchen too, so the learning was not just at the feet listening to the kuya and the kuruiki. it was also out the back, um, hands on, helping out in the kitchen. So politics, dynamics, human relationships, human nature of that engagement. So yeah, we were immersed in the politics of those relationships. But I became more aware of the politics, and I remember in the 70s, and watching TV because it was important. Education was important in our family and that was very much reinforced by both my mother and my father. And part of the education was to keep up with the news. We would watch the news and I remember in the 70s, um, I was aware of the Māori Land March. I never got to go on it. I really wanted to, but I was too young. My father did, went out to Ratanapah, but mum was so focused on us school and the routine of that. And then Thakaparapau, Bastion Point, and seeing the news and what was happening to the people up there.
1: And what impressions did you take away from that?
0: I remember I was horrified when I saw the power of the state, the police numbers going in on force and seeing that, and how unjust that was, how wrong it was. So I was politicised amongst my family unit, the dynamics, the tensions that would go with it. I remember as a 16-year-old actually, Mikey Waitangi Day, down at Motu Gardens, now known as Pākei Ture, and that was about 1980, 81. My koro, Hori, was the rangatira of Whanganui in those days when it was referred to. He was the chief of Whanganui. And he was there inside the gardens with all the dignitaries who were Pakia and outside there was a protest movement of Māori. That's when I first saw and was exposed in real life terms by being present, the police moving in, forcing back a peaceful protest, just with banners and placards, no, no sense of violence whatsoever, but the the police force in numbers just moving in and pushing our people back and away. I was so outraged by that, I went in to, in a sanctum of where all the Pākehā dignitaries were gathered with my kōro and I said to kōro, kōro, you're the chief, that is wrong, I want you to go and do something about it. So that's when I first took some sense of proactive action about it and he came out and he settled it down. So I decided from there, Mikey, I thought maybe that's my purpose in calling a life. I was cleaning law offices at the time too. My mother was a legal executive or secretary working in one of the older legal firms of the day. Never did I think for a moment that I'd be a lawyer working there. But it was on Waitangi Day, about 1980, I saw that action of injustice and I decided then, maybe that's my calling, I'm going to study law. So that's what I did.
1: And what
0: did that career lead you to? Working back home with my community, and my community is Māori and Tauiwi, so everybody who was there in need of legal assistance, legal help. I mean, yes, I worked as a lawyer in the courts, but I also worked in the area of health. So, Wanganui, we were one of the first Māori health providers. So, back in those days, I worked with Tariana and George Turia and Jeff Mariu, and we established Teoranganui, which is still there today. was our first Māori health provider. And then we went about setting up an iwi law centre, but the funding stopped on that and we weren't able to keep that going. So that stopped. But we had the the goal and the desire to create a, a hub where it was health, social services, a justice sector, all of that, so that our people could come to one place rather than having to find their way through this quagmire of networks and where to go. I call it grassroots and coalface. You know, because I'm... Wanganui is my tūranga waiwai, is my papa kāinga. Um, but it was always about being grounded there with the struggles and the hardships of our people. I had the privilege of education. I had the privilege of being a family that valued the importance of our tikanga, our tanga and our mātauranga. I didn't have the real, but my learning was immersed down at the marae amongst the Fano networks, meeting so many people through the different relations and people within the community, but also education. In
1: 1995, Hipamū's community became the focus of the Tinorangatiratanga movement, when Te Runanga o Tore repossessed the disputed land block of Motua Gardens. Hipango, now graduated from law school, found herself at the centre of the conflict.
0: I was working as a criminal defence lawyer in the courts, and the courthouse was positioned on the lot of land, the area, Motor Gardens, Pākaitore. And so that 79-day occupation, I was there from beginning, planning stages right throughout to the end when we marched off, and there were a lot of tensions because working in the courts, but also down with our people on the ground. We had a real cause and a kaupapa, and it was a sense of grievance about the land, which was under just District Council and Crown Governance at the time. And so I haven't spoken publicly about this, but the journey that I went on was one of real struggle and hardship because I was treated appallingly by the justice system, by the police, by the court staff, by the judges, by my colleagues because I was a Māori woman and I was down there amongst my people. But I was also seen by my people. Some as kūpapa, because I worked in the courts. But they didn't understand that I was working in the courts with the purpose of helping our people. And there were a lot of our people who were arrested. And many people may remember the beheading of the John Balance statue. And I got a phone call two o'clock the next morning from my cousin Mark. And he'd been arrested with one other phenoma. And so I represented them in court the next day for a bail application. Our old people simply just wanting to say a karakia in the foyer of the courthouse was not permitted. That created such further division. And I was navigating my way throughout the whole day of getting permission from the judge for our people to say karakia and the of the courthouse and the judge who was so dismissive and unwilling to tolerate anything Maori, let alone a Maori lawyer there. But you know, the travesty of all of that was we were having to plead within the so-called place of justice to have our voice heard, just some of our tikanga, to open the proceedings. Things have changed a lot and they needed to but that was a real challenge for me. I was assaulted by the police in the courthouse because I was Māori, no doubt in my mind about that at all, whatsoever. They were out-of-town police, and I remember the name, I've never forgotten, of the officer who commanded as I was walking through the door with a Pākehā lawyer colleague. They insisted on searching me. I was there as a lawyer to do my, my duty as an officer of the court and my colleague, I felt a sense of abandonment. Walked on, didn't stay to say, no, she's fine. She's an officer of the court, leave her. So I got I got searched, I mean, patted down, the full body search by male police officers. I had two police officers come up to me to restrain me physically. Then I had about another two come up and my arm was forced up behind my back. And they body slammed me up into the wall. And again, I, I said to them, what is, what, you've, arre- you've arrested me because once somebody, they lay hands, that's an arrest. I said, but you've not charged me. What is the charge? They didn't respond. And I was totally stunned and bewildered because they'd caught me at a time where there was nobody else around. Then I got sort of frog marched out of the courtrooms and literally the police got me and they threw me out. I wasn't resisting. I was just asking, why have you done this to me? And I couldn't think of any other reason. Is that racist? I would say yes. I was helping our people, because no other lawyer at the time was prepared to do it. I was the duty lawyer doing it. So, so I know the justice system intimately from both sides, really.
1: What impact did that have on your I
0: was, I was, I was hurt. But you know what, my mamai was nothing compared to what our tupuna had been through and what I'd seen others of our, how they'd been handled and... Brutalised is a very strong term, but my wairua had been brutalised. I'd been physically assaulted. I had been humiliated in that sense, but it strengthened my resolve, Mikey. What I saw as a 16-year-old, played out on me, and I was an officer of the court. It strengthens one's resolve, and it's called resilience, and it's called mana. And it's called life, and we learn from it.
1: Mm. And then the next protest or you? for you, foreshore and seabed. For Sean seabed. Yeah. 2000... You were part of the Hikoi mm. with your daughter,
0: mm. I believe. Mm. Mm. So, 2004. I was like, still working in the courts. I worked in the courts right up until I was called to this place to give service. And Dame Tariana Turia, who we know as Tari back home. Tari grew up in Pūtiki, so we share the same hwakapapa. And Tari was remarkable as a leader, what she did to make her stand. And she did that alone, you know? So 2004, I said to my husband, we're coming down with our babies. And so we did, and we did that march. And that was just this wave of, you know, over the over the, generations, we've still got these challenges. But it was just the fortitude and the resilience and the belief that Tari had, still does. Would you have liked to join the Māori Party? I supported the Māori Party, not in an official way as a member. I would go to Hui and I would go to Hui after I became the National Party candidate because what's important for me are those relationships across all political divides. My father was a Māori Party supporter. I'm a Māori Party supporter, where it's about advocating and pursuing the cause, but I'm also a National Party supporter. I'm a former member of parliament for the National Party, but I also believe it is so important that we have that diversity, and as Māori, we are diverse. It's about being positioned and positioning ourselves into all different areas and levels of influence. So am I a Māori Party supporter? I support whoever it is in whichever political or social grouping is going to help advance the cause and the wellbeing of our people. And when I talk about our people, I talk about my Māori community, but I also talk about my Tāwaiwi community.
1: After 25 years of working as a lawyer, in 2017, Hīpāngo was selected to contest Whanganui for the National Party after being approached by former MP Chester Burrows.
0: So the National Party, I had been asked several times. Both my parents had died by this time. My children were, all three of them, um, were independent. They'd finished their college schooling. And so I thought, this freed me up, because it's always, for me, it's been about Farno and our community first. So I turned to Tariana and I said, what do you think? She said, yes, Te. Yes. And that was, that was acknowledgement, again, that I believe it was aligning with some of the values we'd been immersed in. Look, in my young days, I remember Uncle Hepi Te her and his sons, who were cousins to my father, Timmy and Timu. Strong national party. I didn't grow up in um, a family where mum and dad talked about the party politics, which party that they supported. But I do remember the old people. So Uncle Timu, Sir, Hemi, Sir James Hinari, a strong national as well. And I remember these men, they were statesmen as well. They were, they were politically savvy, but they were statesmen. And the statesmanship about them was the ability to work across all party political lines. And it was that whakafanaungatanga, and it was those relationships. And that's something that I learned from the old people. The importance of the ability to traverse all walks and communities of life, not just here in Aotearoa, but globally as well, Maiki.
1: Mm. You mentioned those names, and we also think back to the likes of Tapira Nangata. Do you still think though that it's the same National Party nowadays and do they value Copapa Māori in the way that perhaps they once did?
0: That's why I believe the National Party leads, needs people like me there. So what it was in the days of the old people I don't know, but I do know that I have value to add to the National Party and I believe that the National Party believes it the same as well. And I want to talk to you then about being Māori
1: in the National Party. What is that like?
0: It doesn't come without difficulty, and I knew that. But also, at the time when I joined the National Party, as a candidate, John Key was the Prime Minister, leader of the National Party. And then when I was elected and Bill English was. And I know that they both had due regard for the relationship with the Māori Party and with the Māori Party leaders at the time and that they had a recognition, they were cognisant of the importance of the changing face of Aotearoa as a nation, I believe. Uh, with the change in leadership, my goodness, in the three short years that I was in, the, in Parliament as a National Party, Māori woman MP and a general electorate seat, five leaders, John Key, then as an MP, Bill English, then Simon Bridges, then Todd Muller, now Judith Collins. What a rocky, turbulent ride that's been for the party as well. But for me um, as Māori within the National Party, it's a case I said before, Mikey. we need to position ourselves in certain places and spaces to be able to influence.
1: What about the National Party Māori supporter? Because there are those out there, but they're not as vocal or as visible as supporters
0: with other parties.
1: Why do you think that is?
0: I think, in part, it's because there's not enough Māori within the party. Māori, on the global and national scale, as contributors to Aotearoa, and particularly now in the economy, we are big punters. And uh, it's time for Aotearoa, it's over time actually, it's overdue. And I think um, money talks, money has influence and power. Not all of us have money. We have resilience, we have education, we have the ability to navigate the turbulent, competing waters and tides that go with it. The Māori voice in the National Party is still yet to be truly valued, I believe. That's coming. And it's about the people who are positioned into seniority within the party, recognising that for what it is. Because I was going to ask you why you think it isn't valued at the moment. I believe it's valued by some, but not by enough. And it is a case that the representation of Māori in Parliament is at the highest of numbers that it's ever been. It's a good thing, but we need to have a better spread because governments come and go and Come the time when there is a change of government, we need to have more of a better spread than what we do now at the moment.
1: Is that something you've raised with the party? The need for more Māori?
0: It's something that I'm working on and we are working on. The
1: 2017 to 2020 parliamentary term would prove to be one of the most tumultuous in the history of the National Party. Which was plagued by scandals, leaks, and a revolving door of leaders. I want to talk to you about uh, Simon Bridges and Todd Muller. Who were you
0: supporting at that time? What happens in caucus is tapu, <laughs> it stays there in caucus. And this is something that I alluded to earlier in our or too. You know, there's too much about me, myself, and I, not enough about we, ourselves, and us. And so I support the National Party. I I was positioned there in the National Party to lift the level of awareness of my colleagues and the party for the time that I was there. I haven't finished. I may be out this time, but just because we're not in Parliament doesn't mean to say that we can't continue to influence in other places and spaces. You know, the days when I practised, I talked about working in the district court as a criminal lawyer. I was a youth advocate, so I was a youth lawyer too. So I worked with a lot of our kids and I practiced in a way that I didn't want people coming into my office. That's far removed from their world. That's coming into my professional world. So I would always ask, could I come to your home? And, and most of them were open to that. So I would go to the homes of these young people. There was no kai on the fridge. The, the, the walls of their houses, they were stripping the boards to burn, to keep warm, you know, to get some warmth during the winter. They were doing, you know, burglary hits down the road, so that they could get something to sell, to get some more food. Now, I'm not for a moment saying that that's the life for everybody, but that was the life for a lot of the people that I worked with to help. And it was about how can we change that? Now, I worked in that area for about 27 years, Mikey. I don't see a heck of a lot of change. I was on a select committee. It was a justice select committee. Now, my background, 27 years practice of law, I didn't get to be on the justice select committee but I was on the Māori Affairs Select Committee only for a short time until I got removed. But I asked to go in, sit on the Justice Select Committee because it was an area that I knew, and it was youth justice. It was about shaping frameworks and policies in the police force and in the justice sector. And I I remember asking a question of one of the senior police leadership, this is the police Commission, actually. I said, have you heard of Te Pu the report, never heard of it. I was astonished. This was 30 years later, and I was with, I was there as a young woman at, during those stages of it being formulated and written. So, all this time later, here I am sitting on a select committee, and we have some of the leaders of this country not knowing about Pualtiata Atatū. Even some of the my MP colleagues, and I'm not just talking National Party, I'm talking about Labour, I'm talking about Greens. I not heard of Pu too. yet these are the very people who are making laws and formulating po- policy to be the solution for our people. And that's the empowerment that I talk about, and that's what really does attract an appeal um, for me to the National Party, but I need to have more time and influence to help shape that. But John Key, Bill English, and... Tariana acknowledges them both for this. It's about empowering our people, that self-responsibility, the self-empowerment, the self-accountability, the mana motuhake that goes with it. Pu too was a beam of reality that still hasn't happened yet.
1: I want to talk a little bit about the policies here in Parliament that you were a part of in terms of the debates, the euthanasia, Bill and the abortion law reform. Mm. Those struck a chord with you,
0: didn't they? They did, and they do with many, not just me. And I'm mindful, you know, I've been elected predominantly by parkers in a general seat as a woman of dual heritage, so I've spoken more about my Māori values inside, but those values aren't um, in isolation for the rest of us in Aotearoa values that we all benefit from. But I spoke because Mikey, again, I was nurtured and shaped with the importance of valuing life and people. What was distorted by the media, whether it was out of convenience or not, is that I was speaking from a pro-Christian viewpoint. They were remiss in not recognising, and I spoke about this in the house, my legal eye leans training um, an application. So I spoke to those bills, premised on looking to the detail in the letter of the law and that's what my job is to do as a lawyer. I had for years worked as a person trained in the law to apply, to apply, to bend, to work the lawyer as would be a benefit and advantage to my clients, the people I was helping and advocating for. I was then at the time in the place of Parliament, as a lawmaker, as a legislator. So I had a responsibility, as does every other parliamentarian, to make sure that whatever law is shaped is done in a way that is legally responsible but is also responsible about protecting our vulnerable. The duty of the state is to protect and look after after its weakest. It's not always about the rights and The liberties and the libertarian movement of this is our freedom of choice, we can have a right to choose. Well yes, but so long as it's responsible and it's not deemed at the life or expense of others. So the media played me out as being pro-Christian. I'm not anti-Christian in any way whatsoever but it wasn't from the perspective of a person trained and skilled in the law and that's what my training, my job was to do, and I articulated that, but it wasn't portrayed that way. I'd worked in the space with young women who had abortions and the impact that that had had on their lives and their whanau lives as well. I'd worked in the area of end-of-life and palliative care, mental health units, psychogeriatric units. I had worked in that space for years, and I had drawn on that to say here's a parallel of the shaping and actual safe legislation in place and how it can have effect to protect our people while still permitting the ability to have some level of choice, not at the expense of other people's safety and protection. What about
1: your comments that the Prime Minister was
0: supporting full-term abortions? Was that too far? The comment that was made there in the context, again, it was distorted. And the context was, again, that looking at the letter of the law and the letter of the law permits that to happen. That's not too far. You're speaking with a woman who is a lawyer here. And you're speaking with a woman who will call it out for what it is. And the power of the media is so mightyful. I've learnt that. And when I use my voice, people will and manipulate that whatever way they choose to. My family have learnt that too through these campaigns, the social media trolling that's gone on. I talked about the bigotry and racism, that wasn't just targeted at me. It's appalling when they target my children and my husband. That happened. It's appalling that it's still happening, but that's the reality. And even though I look like and sound like what I do, I've been called out, you sound too Pakia, you look too Pakia, you you're too Māori. Whichever way I go, that's the resilience factor. I'm always going to be judged and condemned either way, no matter what. But it's about value space. The media, you are so powerful. And if you go down a certain line, you can portray a person to be something that they're really not. And I learnt that as a politician. I've also learnt as a politician that there is a place for, I talked about respect, there is a place for diplomacy. There's that place no matter what political party, I will always have a place for the relationships, the whakuhanaungatanga. And just because I'm a particular political party doesn't mean to say that I don't hold due regard for my colleagues in the house. And the regard for them is not only about them, it's about their tūpuna as well and about where we take, whilst we're positioned here, what good and better we can do in terms of empowering our communities and our people.
1: Who were your allies in Parliament, those you would turn to for
0: support and advice? I would go home. And from a practical point of view, it was about observing, assessing, learning the terrain, learning the art of politics, learning the treachery of politics, learning the importance of integrity that needs to be with this place. My integrity comes from my old people and from my parents and then it's up to me as to what I've chosen to do with that. So allies. In my office, I had set up the bookshelf and in that bookshelf I had our, our whanau, our hipango kahukiwi laid there. And the hipango mere Pounamu laid there. And then positioned Just beside them, photos of my tūpuna, my great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father, and my deceased brother Wata. And having that visual but obvious presence in the office was really important for me. So there were days I'd go into my office and I would just stroke the kahu and the mere and hold the photos of my partner.
1: That does sound rather lonely, here. Yeah. And you've mentioned the word integrity quite a bit. Did you feel as though you could trust
0: many people here? You trust your instinct. (sighs) Mm. Yes, it is lonely. It is lonely, um, but One has to immerse into the setting to learn how to survive.
1: Election 2020 will go down as one of the worst results for National. What was it like for those of
0: you in the thick of it? The campaign was disrupted and disruptive. It wasn't tight, it wasn't a collective. People were going off on their own kaupapa and course. Out of adversity, though, come good things. And it's about having the mindset and the way of moving beyond. So it's the learnings that come with these things, Mikey, My concern always comes back to how's it going to affect our people on the ground? How's it going to affect our our communities? The, The struggles and the hardships, are they going to be lessened in any way with what we're moving into, what we're embarking on with the policy sets and formulations? I'm a firm believer that we've we've got to empower our people, our communities. And I've worked in the area with people who know how to do that. So during the COVID period lockdown, my views don't always, my views have never aligned with many of my um, caucus colleagues. I'm not in there to be a yes and a no to their views. I'm there to challenge and to test because I've been selected, elected by my community and articulate and be their voice. But my community, as I say, is Māori and Pākehā. But um, out of the 2020 election, my concern is for Aotearoa. My concern is for how are people going to come out of dependency Are there going to be more or less jobs? The jobs that are there now at the moment, why are people not taking them up? We're struggling to get people to work. Why is that? Why are we so locked into this level of dependency on the state, having to keep providing? Um, And I'm not saying that a, a one fits all scenario, but I do know from the communities that I come from, that I've grown within, Māori community, legal community, Business community and the importance of how policies impact on that, whether we can grow the business to nurture and sustain others to grow with it. Yeah, I'm concerned for the direction that the country's going in and whether we continue to have this handout mentality or we start more of the resilience and investment in our people on the ground.
1: Following the demise of Todd Muller's short-lived leadership, Hi was given a significant promotion by his successor, Judith Collins. But it wasn't enough to return her to Parliament. In the red wave of the 2020 election, Hi lost her seat. And National didn't gain enough party vote to return her as a List MP. Do you hope to come back to this place? Perhaps at the next election?
0: Whether it's the next election or not, my hope and my desire to make a difference is still there, Mikey. Whether it's in this space, in Parliament or not, is left to the people. I've still got a few years and levels of service to give, so wherever that might be. Three years went by too quickly. Not nearly enough was done and achieved. There were things that I achieved for our community, when I talk about our community. Bearing in mind I'm in a general seat, an electorate, Um, politics is a a numbers game. And I saw and I learned, and that for some people can compromise their values. That's not easy. And I tried, never and I hope I never did compromise my values. But politics, uh, democracy is a numbers game. So you're chosen by the will of the people and the voting power of the people. I came to be here because the reality is the majority vote was the Pākehā vote. So what I managed to do in the time that I was here wasn't just solely about me, what I achieved. It was because of the relationships that I had with other people. My colleagues who were in government and in other ministerial or portfolio responsibilities, being able to just all and say, this is going to be good for our community, our community, which is my community, and for others as well. So whether it's means coming back to Parliament. Time will tell. Time, time is a teller of all things, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Well, we shall see. Koe. Kiki
1: Ngā
0: Kia ora, Mikey. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Mātangi This podcast was made possible by RNZ and New Zealand On Air. This episode was presented by Mikey Sherman edited by Debbie Matthews, sound recording by Craig Mullis, audio design by Dean Judd, music by Audio Network. A big thank you to Kay Almers and Tim Burnell at RNZ Commissioning, alongside Kurahotu Māori Shannon Honui thompson Our executive producer is Wena Haruera. Mā was directed and produced by Annabel Lee Mather and me, Mihi Forbes, for Aotearoa Media Collective.